If you have your Bibles, we are going to be wrapping up our series on the Gospel of Luke today. We've got some exciting sermon series coming up over the next couple of months. I'll tell you a little bit more about those. Um, for those of you who are newer, I'm Jeff Kerr. My wife, Christy, and I pastor the church here. We've been going here for about two and a half years. We meet here at the building here at Faith United Methodist, the lovely congregation there. We've, uh, we rent space from them, and we meet here on Sunday mornings. And on a morning like this, when it's super hot, we just realize someday we'll have our own building, and there might even be air conditioning, and that's the hope that we have, kind of like the hope of heaven. The hope of air conditioning is in our hearts, alive and well. Um, we're so glad you're here. Christy, my wife, is not here. She directs girls' ministry for the denomination we're a part of is the Assemblies of God. So for the state of Minnesota Assemblies of God, Christy is in charge of girls' ministry. And it's a great fit for her, except this one weekend every year where part of what she has to do is lead a camp out for the girls, like camping. Outdoor, tent, you know, and without fail, and this weekend was probably, I don't know if you watched the weather, but up in like the Brainerd Baxter area, it was just raining all weekend, and it always seems to be the case for these poor girls camping. Now, the girls that are up there camping, they, are, they roll with it, but Christy, this is not her wheelhouse. This is not her gift set, but she's been handling it like a champ. I spoke to her this morning. She still has a smile on her face. She's putting on a good face. That smile will fade when she gets home, and I will bear the brunt of all that happened to her. But I'm willing to take it. I'm willing to take one for the team. But she, was, uh, she did such a great job camping. She's had a great time up there. They'll be getting back here uh, later this afternoon. Some of our youth girls are up there as well, leading the worship and, and doing those things. All right. We are going to wrap up the story, the Gospel of Luke. And if you are just joining us and you haven't been a part of a lot of these weeks throughout the summer, we started this in the early part of the summer. We've gone through a lot of great stories, but we're going to wrap up everything. We've got a sermon series, a different series starting next Sunday. Um, and so I realized, well, it's like watching a movie and you know the kind of the main event is coming and you know, you know what's coming. And I've, I realized, wow, I've got a lot of like really important stuff to cover. So this may feel like um, I don't know if you've ever watched like a TV series that maybe um, they find out halfway through the season they're getting canceled and so they have to tie up all the loose ends like in the last two episodes and you feel like, whoa, that's a lot to digest in one episode or two episodes. That may be what this feels like a little bit. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning and it really wraps up the Gospel of Luke so well, but it also sets us up for what we're going to talk about over the next five Sundays. And the next five Sundays we're going to do a series called The Skeptic and the believer. And uh, watch for the Homestead page on social media. We'll post more about it. But really what I want to do is just have some conversations that address some of the questions that maybe we have as believers. So maybe some of the things we don't understand, like what do we, what do we believe about evolution and science and doesn't that prove the Bible wrong in certain ways? But maybe we're scared to ask these questions because we may, you know, take you into another room and pour holy water on you or something like that. We're not going to do that. Um, but then there's a lot of people, and maybe you have some friends who are like this, who they just can't get their heads around certain parts of Christianity. They just can't, they can't understand why we would even believe that God exists, or certainly why we would believe a good God exists when there's all this pain in the world. Maybe you've heard that before. Or doesn't science prove Christianity wrong? Or how do we even know that Jesus rose from the dead? Isn't that just a fairy tale that the disciples made up just to kind of keep their movement going? Isn't that something that we all just wink, wink, agree on so that we can say, hey, let's keep having church. We just have to say that this happened, kind of like Santa Claus. Um, and after a while, like Santa Claus, some people, looking at my audience, some people start to doubt if Santa Claus even exists. Well, I don't understand that. So, um, 
we are going to look at that. And that's why today leads so well into that. Because what we're going to talk about today as we wrap up the Gospel of Luke, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. This is everything. This hinge, everything hinges on these things. Our belief in God, our belief in Jesus hinges on what happened. He died and he rose. If we don't believe these things happened, well, then we believe in vain. And there's a scripture verse that we're going to look at in a minute that says that very thing. So we're going to wrap up Luke today. And as we do, um, I just wanted to open up this time in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word, your word that we believe is truth for our lives. We believe that it is things that we can apply to our life to become more like you, and we want to do that today. I pray that your word would come alive here today for everybody who's listening, everybody who's reading, um, that we would draw closer to you as we read your word today. Help me to communicate what you want me to communicate today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 22. There's some black hardcover Bibles in the rows around you if you wanted to follow along. We're going to be moving through, racing through the end of the story here. But as we do, And if you've been here for a few weeks, I've mentioned this. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, which is the story of Jesus, from when he was born to when he started ministering, he has his disciples, he's baptizing people, he's healing people. Throughout all of these miracles, all of these stories that we have been talking about for the last 12 or so weeks, um, I've mentioned this a few times, and hopefully you've picked up on this. There's kind of the, there's the surfacey things that Jesus is doing, and everyone loves Jesus, but there's this undercurrent of tension that has been building the whole time. And that involves three groups of people. It involves the Romans. The Romans rule over Israel at this time, over Judea, over the Israelites. It's part of the Roman Empire. So the Israelites are subject to Rome. And as anybody who is subject to another nation... They don't like that. They don't like Rome. They're dreaming of a day when they will rid the oppression of the Roman Empire and be free. And their view of the Messiah, as they read through the Jewish scriptures, is somebody who's going to lead a rebellion against Rome. That's what they're looking for in a Messiah. So they don't like Rome. Rome is in control. That's one of the tensions. The second tension involves the Pharisees. I mentioned them. It seems every story we've mentioned, there's always a Pharisee there. They are the religious rulers. They are the rule followers. They're the ones that they know the scripture. They're the most religious, and they lord that over people. They manipulate people. They control people. Um, And then you've got just the common people who love Jesus. The Pharisees don't like Jesus because they see him as a threat, so they're constantly trying to trip him up. The Romans... They're not paying that close attention, but they're watching this because they've seen this before. These people that rise up say they're the Messiah and lead a rebellion against Rome. So they're watching because what happens is as soon as the rebellion starts, Rome marches in a bunch of soldiers and wipes everybody out, and that's it. It's happened before. So all these tensions are going on. The Romans who are kind of watching Jesus a little bit, the Pharisees who are trying to control the people religiously, they are, you know, kind of... They are, they've given up, they've kind of, I'm trying to think of a better word to do it, but they're kissing butt to the Romans, I guess. That clearly wasn't the better word. I failed there. Um, And then the people who love Jesus because he is caring for them. He cares for the poor. He cares for the needy. All these things that the Pharisees don't do, the Romans certainly don't do. So this is all the tension that is building. The people are waiting They believe Jesus is the Messiah, and like all the other Messiahs they believed in, they believe that there's going to come a day where he's going to say, let's go, 
Let's overthrow the oppression of Rome. Let's lead this rebellion to freedom. Here we go, kind of like, you know, Braveheart, kind of Messiah, that, that whole thing there. This is the tension. The Pharisees want to arrest Jesus. They want to be rid of Jesus, but they can't do it because they know if they do, the people are going to riot, and they know then Rome's going to come in and wipe everybody out. So they're trying to figure out a way to get rid of Jesus without the people staging a rebellion. And so what happens then, as we're getting, you know this from, you know, Easter sermons, there is one of Jesus' disciples that is a willing betrayer. This is Judas. He betrays Jesus in a way where he goes to the Pharisees and says, I have a way for you to arrest Jesus when he's all by himself or with a very small group of people. It'll be in the middle of the night. The crowds aren't going to be there. You can sneak in. I'll tell you where and when he is there, and then you can arrest him, and nobody's going to even know about it. And that, of course, is the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that from our Good Friday sermons. When Jesus was in the garden the day before he was crucified, the night before he was crucified, and he's praying to God, God, if you can think of another way for this to happen without me having to die, but nonetheless, thy will be done. That Garden of Gethsemane. Well, right after that is when Judas leads the Roman soldiers and the Phar- actually just the Pharisees in there, and they arrest Jesus. And that's where we're going to start reading in Luke chapter 22, verse 66. Luke chapter 22, verse 66. We're going to go through quite a bit of scripture today. All these words are going to be up on the screen. It says this in verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they met together and Jesus was led before them. This is after Jesus was arrested in the garden. And they say to him, if you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of mighty God. And they all asked, are you the Son of Man? And Jesus replied, you say that I am. And then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. So Jesus is arrested. He's taken before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers. And they don't really have a charge against him. But they just know they want to get rid of him. And they've been trying to drum up a charge against Jesus for so long. And they bring him before the rulers. And eventually they have something that they can use. They said, you heard it right there. He said that he's the son of God. This is blasphemy to them. This is blasphemy. So they say, what more do we need? We can arrest him. You know, yay for us, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and all the rulers. But here's the deal. They don't have any power, political power or like police power to arrest someone. They certainly don't have any power to sentence somebody to death is what they want for Jesus. But they can't do it. They need the Romans to get involved. So they have to take Jesus to the Roman rulers, and they take him before Pilate, who was the Roman ruler over Judea at that time. And the next verse is in verse 23, chapter 1. It says this, Then the whole assembly rose and led him, Jesus, off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man subverting our nation. Now, again, they're in a political room now. They were in religious arena before. Now they're talking in political terms. We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. 
So the Pharisees' plan is, seems to be thwarted. But what I found so interesting in reading these, when it was just the religious people with Jesus, their charge against him was what? Do you remember what it was? It was blasphemy. It was religious. You're saying that you are God, and that was enough for them. But all of a sudden, they're in before the political rulers, the Roman rulers, and their charges against Jesus are completely different. Did you catch that? Their charges were, we found this man subverting our nation. You know, he's not, a loyal, he's not loyal to Rome, is what they're saying, a political charge. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, which was a lie, Right? He hadn't ever said that, but they're making up charges now because they can't say to the political people, he's blasphemous because Rome's going to say, I don't care. I don't even really believe in your God. What do I care about blasphemy? So they make up all these other charges, and yet Pilate doesn't take the bait. He doesn't fall for it. He says, I don't see any reason to charge this man, even though the Pharisees are making up all these charges. So Pilate wants nothing to do with this. He's, a, he's probably a shrewd politician. He's like, I can see a landmine coming a mile away. I want nothing to do with this. Just take him somewhere else. And, they, and he actually says, wasn't he, isn't he from Galilee? And they're like, yeah. Oh, that's, uh, that's Herod's problem. Send him over there. So they take him over to Herod. And Herod enjoys the spectacle. And you can read this. I encourage you to read these chapters this week. It's such a great story. Herod wants nothing to do with as well. He enjoys the spectacle, but he sends him back to Pilate. All these guys, they want nothing to do with the problem. Like tough legislation in our government today. Seems a lot of people are like, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. Somebody else take it. Somebody else take it. This is what's happening. And eventually Pilate, you know the story, Pilate gives in to mob mentality, to the shouts of the crowds, because now the crowds have turned on Jesus. Now the crowds have turned on Jesus. And Pilate gives in, and eventually Jesus is arrested, taken away. He is beaten, and then a cross is strapped on his back. This is all the next morning. And he is led up to the place where he will be crucified by the Romans. The Romans have agreed, we will crucify Jesus. Now, that path that Jesus walked with the cross on his back, you can still walk that path today in Jerusalem. Maybe you've been there and you've walked that. If you're there, I was there, it's probably 20 years ago, so I'm sure it's even changed more now, but it's, you know, you would love it to be kind of a religious, solemn thing where you could walk and get a feel for, for what Jesus was feeling that day. But now, it's, it's, as in most things in Jerusalem and in Israel, it's been very touristed. You know, there's tourist shops everywhere. The whole way of the cross the street is lined with shops where you can buy souvenirs and postcards and, you know, bits of wood or little crosses. It's very touristy now, which is unfortunate, but I understand that's why they do it, because people want to go walk that road that Jesus walked. And Jesus walked that road that day and with the cross beam on his back. And we read about this in uh, chapter 23, verse 33. We're going to read a few verses there. Verse 33 says this, When they came to a place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he can save others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? 
We are punished justly, and we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the, stu- for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. This is the crucifixion story of Jesus. This is when Jesus gave his life. You know, all those moments, he could have very easily called down angels. All those times when people are mocking him, that would have been hard for me to say, oh, yeah, you keep trash talking. I'll show you. And so this is Jesus willingly laying down his life, willingly submitting him to the plan of the Father. And the plan was this, for our sin, for the sin of humanity, for our sin to be paid once and for all, and Jesus died. And I love that even in those moments leading up to his death, he is still showing mercy. Father, forgive them. To the criminal that hung on his side who was saying, remember me, Jesus, when you enter your kingdom, he's showing mercy. There is forgiveness and grace. And this is the message of the cross. No matter what you have done, there is forgiveness and grace. This is why Jesus died. Now, when we look at this story, we're going to keep going. There's still more to the story. When we keep going, some of you, maybe it would be great if some of, somebody was in church and they didn't know how the story ends. They'd be like, really? Wow, this is awesome. Um, we look at this story with the benefit of hindsight. We know there's more to the story. We know the rest of Scripture. We know how the story ends. Um, We know through the whole of Scripture that this was God's plan of redemption. The sin of mankind, as I said, was being paid by the sacrifice of Jesus. But those who were there that day, they did not have the benefit of hindsight, right? They don't know how the story is going to end. They don't know what's all going to come. They didn't have this hindsight. They didn't recognize God's plan. All that they knew was their Messiah, the one that they had been following, the one who was supposed to lead them to freedom, was on a cross, and he had now died. So if you were part of the movement of Jesus, if you were a believer in Jesus up to that point, it was over. It was over. There were no followers of Jesus later on that night because the movement had ended. It was done. Nobody said, well, maybe we can carry on. Everybody knew this was done because their leader, the one that they had believed was the Son of God, was dead. And when someone's dead, they tend to stay dead. And so they would have thought, this movement is over. And they thought the movement had died when Jesus died. The Romans, they didn't really care. They crucified people all the time. Part of reality in that world was Romans would crucify people as a deterrent for doing anything that subverted Rome. They did this all the time. The Pharisees were relieved The threat of Jesus is gone. They can continue on their religious high horse, manipulating and controlling and policing the people religiously. And the disciples of Jesus, all his followers, not just the 12 disciples, but the hundreds and thousands at this point who were convinced that he was their savior, they have scattered and the movement is done. Peter was gone. He had denied Jesus and he thought that's, he just had carried that shame of just before my teacher, my master died, I denied him three times and Jesus knew it. So Peter is guilt-ridden and heartbroken. Judas betrayed Jesus and now he is guilt-ridden. You can read on and find out that he eventually just returns the money he got from the Pharisees and he kills himself. 
he is riddled with guilt. And the other disciples are scattered. And everybody knew all that they had done in the last few years with Jesus. It was over. Now, this is important to make note of, especially as we look into the next series when we're going to talk about how do we know that Jesus really rose from the dead? How do we know that we can trust the Bible? How do we really know that Jesus was the Son of God? Well, it's important to note that at this point in history, the movement was over. Nothing was going to come of it. So something had to happen for the movement to start again. For us to even be here as a church today as Jesus followers, something significant needed to happen after that crucifixion. If this was the end of the story when Jesus died, we would not be here as Christians today. There wouldn't be Christianity. But then we know a couple of days later, there's an empty tomb, and we're going to read on. Chapter 24, dun-dun-dun, the empty tomb. Chapter 24, verse 1 through 9 says this, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And even at that point, they're not thinking resurrection. We'll find that out. They're thinking somebody took the body. Again, nobody was thinking resurrection because when people die, they tend to stay dead. That tends to be what happens. But in verse 4, while they were wondering about this, what happened to the body, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead. I love that line. He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven disciples and to all the others. Well, now... Now we're off and running, right? Now the story really starts getting good, really starts ramping up. The disciples who were hiding together, they are now able to go boldly profess their faith. What happens is Jesus is alive, and he starts to appear to people. He appears to the disciples in different times. And then he starts appearing to several others. And now these disciples are boldly professing their faith. This movement, this Christian movement, this Jesus movement that was over, it was dead when Jesus died, is now a movement that is going to start spreading around the world that is going to last through persecution, through century after century, generation after generation, leading to us gathered here today. This movement spread around the world. So what changed? After the crucifixion, this whole thing was done. This whole thing was done. What changed? Well, obviously something huge changed. There was an empty tomb. There was Jesus who was dead now appearing to people. He was resurrected. He was alive. The resurrection changed everything. And of course it would, right? Of course it would. If you and I were there, we would have the same thought. Of course the resurrection changes everything. If I followed you, Jesus, and I realize now that you called your death and you called your resurrection. You called your shot and then you pulled it off. You said you were going to die and then be raised and then you pulled it off. Well, if somebody can do that, I'm going to listen to everything they have to say, right? If you can predict your death and resurrection and then pull it off, I'm going to trust everything you say. I'm going to listen to everything you have to say. You want to know why I believe in the scripture? You want to know why I believe in God, why I believe in Jesus? 
It's because there was Jesus who rose from the dead. Because of the resurrection is why I believe. You want to know why I believe the scriptures to be true? There's a few reasons. But the biggest one is when you hear Jesus talk about the scriptures, he says that they're true. And I believe the guy that died and rose again. I'm going to listen to what he has to say. And that's why our belief hinges on this empty tomb. There are those in our world today that, believe, that don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. It's historically verifiable that Jesus was a man who lived. There's documentation of that, not just the scriptures, but historical writers. There was, everyone knows, Jesus was a man who lived. He was a teacher. He was a prophet. And he died. He was crucified. That's historically verifiable. That there are people who don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God because they don't believe he rose from the dead. And if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, well, then, yeah, he was just another teacher who got killed by the Romans, as so many had done. But those people who want to claim that Jesus was just another man, they have to come up with an answer for the empty tomb, right? And we're going to talk more about that in the next series. I'll just talk a little bit about these things. We're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks. I would love to have you join us for this next series and invite a friend who's maybe skeptical about all these things. They have to come up with an explanation for the empty tomb. Obviously, the Romans and the Pharisees, they don't want an empty tomb. The Pharisees realize, man, this problem was gone, and now all of a sudden they're like, there's an empty tomb. We have to figure out what to do with that. The Romans significantly would look bad and weak if the person they crucified and they put guards, they rolled a huge stone in front of the tomb because they know maybe the disciples are going to try to steal the body and say that he rose. So they place armed guards there. And so they say, well, maybe the disciples, maybe the answer then for those who don't believe in God or don't believe in Jesus, maybe their answer is, well, the disciples obviously snuck up and stole the body, you know, rolled away that huge stone and overcame the powerful Roman army. Those disciples that were convinced the movement was over and were hiding, I don't really see that as feasible. There was one, I was reading some books this week about some of the other explanations for the empty tomb. And one was, well, the disciples simply went to the wrong tomb that day. They were confused, and they went to the wrong tomb, and they said, hey, it's empty, yay. And, well, that doesn't obviously hold water, because then the Romans could say, no, sorry, wrong tomb, actually over here, here he is still, you know, still dead. It's not hard to prove that somebody's still in a tomb when he's still in the tomb. They could have, you know, proved them wrong very quickly. Another one that I hear from some people is, well, Jesus never really died. He was never really dead. They thought he was dead, and they put him in the tomb, but he wasn't really dead. He was only mostly dead. Have you seen The Princess Bride? Right? Thank you. He was only, he's not dead. He's only mostly dead. Um, that's, and I've heard some people say that, that even in that day, they said, well, the reason the empty tomb was there is Jesus never really died. They believe that he was beaten and hung on a cross, and if you were crucified, you weren't just beaten up a little bit. You, your body was torn apart. And the Romans were good at this. And there's no way they're taking somebody off that cross who isn't, who is only mostly dead. And if you're only mostly dead and you're in a tomb with a huge rock rolled against it with armed guards on the outside, I'm pretty sure you're not going to be able to, you know, bust your way out of there. But we'll talk about that more in a few weeks. The empty tomb is everything for me. If you believe he died and you believe he rose, like really believe that it happened, I'm not sure how we can not believe I'm not sure how we can even be kind of wishy-washy in our convictions. Well, I believe that Jesus was nice. I like Christianity because it's, you know, it helps me feel good. I like going to church. If you believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, well, man, that changes how we believe, doesn't it? That changes how we act, how we behave. 
that gives us some firm conviction. The Apostle Paul writes about this in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This would have been written, you know, within 30 years of Jesus dying and rising from the dead. The Apostle Paul writes this to a group of new believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, it says this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So he's telling these followers, this is the most important thing, that Christ died for us, for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the twelve disciples, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. This passage of Scripture is fascinating to me, that most of the New Testament, actually all of the New Testament was written after Jesus died and rose from the dead, but before all the eyewitnesses had died off. Peter is, or Paul is saying that. Christ appeared to over 500 people, most of whom are still living. So that's Peter. That's Paul's way of saying, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. They're all still living. And I love that he says, even though some have fallen asleep. He didn't say some have died. He said some have fallen asleep, as if a way to just encourage them in that word of, it's not over. It's not over. Because now we know that those who are dead, they don't stay dead forever, right? I love that he said, they've fallen asleep because there is coming a day where we will be in heaven. But this is Paul saying, if you don't believe me, go talk to the eyewitnesses. Go talk to the eyewitnesses. If you don't believe me, there are all these people that saw Jesus. You can go fact check me. When we started the Gospel of Luke series, I mentioned that Luke was a doctor. He was a medical doctor, and his whole reason for doing this was to talk to the eyewitnesses, to research all the things that he had heard about Jesus, and to write a detailed account. Now, throughout Luke, you see him referencing people's names. Um, the, he references the rulers in Rome at the time so that you can have a historical reference. He's mentioning all these names. Paul does the same thing. He's mentioning names. He, why are they doing that? Because they're saying, fact check me. If you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, talk to some of the people who saw him rise from the dead, who saw him after he had been raised. You can talk to this person or this person. What I love is that they're naming all these names. If you don't believe me, talk to these people. And by the way, they're standing over there. They're still living. You can go talk to them. You can go ask them what they saw, what they experienced. This is how the Gospel of Luke wraps up. And I'm going to read the final verses of the Gospel of Luke as we wrap up here in just a couple of minutes. I know we're covering a lot of ground, but we had to, we had to get through the main event the main story today. And this is how the Gospel of Luke, I'm in the wrong Gospel. The Gospel of Luke ends in Luke chapter 24, verse 50. It says this, starting in verse 50, we're going to read through verse 53. When he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, this is Jesus, he's now with his disciples again. He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and he was taken up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to, to, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. That is the end of the Gospel of Luke. And it kind of is a, an abrupt ending. But the story continues on. And Luke is also the writer of the or that book of Acts, where that's where the story continues. Where Luke wrote how Jesus gave the Great Commission. He continues the story there. So if you want the sequel, you've got to read the book of Acts. But this is the end of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus rose, 
He appeared to the people, over 500 people, he appeared to them, and then he ascended into heaven. So as we wrap up this series, and as we wrap up this message today, I just have to ask you, that story that we read about the resurrection of Jesus, you personally, what do you believe about that? Do you believe that that's kind of folklore, fairy tale that we just talk about on Easter Sunday? Or do you believe it happened? And if you believe it really happened, as I believe it happened because of the way this all is written, because of all the eyewitnesses, I believe it happened because if it hadn't happened, there's no way the movement would have moved forward past the crucifixion. It would have been done. Something had to happen to turn those cowardly disciples into bold professors of their faith, right? Into bold declarations that Jesus had risen. They saw a risen Savior. So what do you believe about the resurrection? I have many reasons to believe that it's real. I think that's why we are here. We serve a risen Savior. But what does that mean? Yes, thank you. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for you in your regular life, in your day-to-day life, in the circumstances that you face? What does that mean about the faith that you profess to others or the boldness in which you live out your faith? What does that mean about those, maybe you're here, you kind of just dip your toes in the water of Christianity, you come to church, and then you kind of go on with your week. What does a resurrected Messiah, Savior, mean for that? Is it time where you could say, you know what, I believe this to be true. And if you die for me and you rise again, then Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm with the guy who can die and then rise again. That's who I'm with. I'm going to have my faith be raised because of the risen Savior. Then we look at all the rest of the things that Jesus said, all the rest of the things he taught us how to live, and we can say, I believe that there's truth there because it's spoken by the guy who rose from the dead. I'm going to believe what he has to say. Maybe it would raise, if you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, maybe it would raise the importance of the word of God in your life where you would say, this is not just something that they read in church. These are the words of the Savior who rose from the dead. These are the words of the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. Maybe the importance of the word of God in your life gets ramped up a little bit. But here's what I know, and what we've studied through the book of Luke, and we're going to wrap up in a couple of minutes. I know it's warm in here. Here's what we know. Jesus lived, and he reached out in love to all people, the hurting and broken, the poor, the needy, all the outcasts, You read that in every story. All the people that society would say, you are on the outs, we want nothing to do with you. Those are the people that Jesus ministers to. He lived and he reached out in love to all people. We see that Jesus died for our sin. He took our sin on himself and he paid the price for sin once and for all so that we could have this relationship with God. We could have this relationship with God. So how, what that means in our life, maybe you feel like God doesn't want anything to do with you because you've just messed up so much. Maybe you walk through life feeling like, I just fail over and over. What's even the point of being a Christian? Well, we know Jesus died for that. So now you can walk in new life because the price for forgiveness has been paid. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? He rose. Now everything he says we can believe because he rose from the dead. We now know that he is a living Savior. All the things that he said were to come, we believe it because he is the guy who rose from the dead. He's the one that did that, and we believe him. We believe that he is the Son of God because of that resurrection. And we see that Jesus ascended into heaven. 
but didn't leave us alone. We read in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, is with us. So how does that apply to your life? Maybe you feel like you are alone, that you are alone. Maybe you're walking in life and you're like, God, I don't sense you. I don't even think you're real in my life. Well, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, is among us. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God, when you receive Christ, dwells in you, that God is with you. You know you can walk through anything knowing that God is with us. And we know because of some verses that we're going to read in a minute, we know he lived, we know he died, he rose, he ascended to heaven, and we know he is coming back again. Amen? We know that he is coming back again. These are the things. Now, I believe all of these things because Jesus said it, and I trust what he says. I believe all of these things have great impact on our life. Whatever circumstance you are in, however you are feeling, whatever hurt you are experiencing, whatever loss or brokenness, failure, whatever it is, you can apply these things. Jesus lived, and he loved the outcast. He died. My sin has been paid for. He rose victorious. He ascended to heaven, but the presence of God and the Holy Spirit is with us, and he is coming back again someday. So what situation in your life does not improve when you apply those things, right? If you're feeling hopeless, if you're looking around the world today like this world is hopeless, we know that this world is not the end. He is coming back again, that God is with us. If you're feeling like a failure in your faith, you know your, your price for sin, your price for failure has been paid. All of these things, I believe it because Jesus said it, and it makes such a difference. It makes faith in him come alive, amen? When we read... What I'm going to read now, I love that this is Jesus talking about what it is to come. What's to come? This is a few days before he was crucified. Jesus said these things in Luke chapter 21. This is how we're going to wrap up today. Luke chapter 21, verse 25. These words will be up on the screen. This is Jesus talking to the people before he died. This is Jesus talking about what is still to come. And it says this. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on in the world. That sounds a lot like today. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. This is Jesus saying, they will see me coming back again someday in the clouds with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, I love this. This applies to us. This is the whole point. When these things begin to take place, stand up. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Amen. I love that. When you feel like your world is falling apart, when you feel like the world is falling apart, where everything is falling all around you, I, I take these words that Jesus said. Stand up. Stand up. Lift up your head because there is coming a day when Jesus is coming back. That is our hope. That is our hope. It could be today. It could be a long ways down the future. I heard on social media that the rapture was supposed to take place yesterday. Did anybody read that? Like, there were some people, yeah? So, I don't know. Either we were all wrong or it didn't happen. But what I said on Facebook today was just the fact that I'm here shouldn't, can, shouldn't reassure too many of you, but Christy Kerr is still with us even though she's out camping. So, that's the best sign for all of us right there. She's like my rapture gauge right there that it didn't happen. When you feel like your world is falling around, you apply what we have studied today. 
he, Jesus lived, and he died for you, and he rose again, and he is coming back someday. So no matter what you face, you can stand up, you can lift your head, and you can say, no matter what this world throws at me, my hope is not built on what this world throws at me. My hope is built on Jesus and his blood and his righteousness. I, my hope is built on him, that he rose and that he is coming back again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your life. We thank you for your death and your resurrection. And our hope is in the joy that we know that you are coming back again, that you are with us now, you're coming back again. So, Lord, I pray that all of us would apply these things to our life, to our circumstances, to our families, to the things that we're uncertain about, to our hurts to times when we have been betrayed, to times when we have felt pain, to times when we have felt that you are far off, that we would apply these truths, that you are with us, and our hope is that you are coming back again. Help us to walk in victory. Help us to stand in faith, to lift our eyes to you and walk in fullness of faith. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen.